Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there. Ever dream of making your own podcast? Let me tell you a little bit about Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. First, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, and welcome to Why Are You Like This, a podcast devoted to finding out who we are and why we do the things we do. I'm your host, Ryan Andrews, and I am very excited to introduce you to today's guest. Our guest is a writer, producer, director, actor, and horror expert. Please welcome to the mic, Michael Verardi. Hello, hello. I'm so excited to be pew, here. Pew, pew. Welcome to the pod. I'm so excited to have you here. I, I can't wait. I'm, I am interested to see uh, why I'm like this. Yeah, let's let's delve into it. <laughs> so I did a quick uh, Google of you to find out some some information that may or may not be true. Okay. So let's see. Uh, you are from New Mexico. Yes, I was born in New Mexico, but uh, I never actually lived in New Mexico. So in the 70s to early 80s, uh, my parents worked on a, a Navajo reservation at a school district. And uh, my dad was the principal of a school and my mom was a teacher. And it just so happened that the reservation, which was in Arizona, the closest hospital was in Gallup, New Mexico, which was where I was born. So I was actually born in a state that I didn't live in, but uh, it is my point of origin. Oh, yes, I have that in common. I was born in Rhode Island, but grew up in Oregon. So it's, uh, it gives a lot of, huh? When you, you know, fill out information about yourself. It does because it kind of like people will ask me about New Mexico, which of course I've now since spent time in and have a great affinity for, but, um, uh, you know, people when I was growing up would, would ask me questions about it. It does have my favorite license plate in the entire country. <laughs> oh yeah. It is a stylish license plate, you know, give it up to New Mexico for doing something aesthetic. They have a great turquoise on there. It's beautiful. So you were born in New Mexico, but you grew up in Arizona? Um, so in the movie Showgirls, Nomi Malone always says that she's from different places, 
and I have sort of adopted that as my own. I spent the early few years of my life in uh, Arizona, and then we moved to Colorado, where which is where I was for most of elementary school. And then uh, we moved again to Western Pennsylvania, where I, I kind of finished out the junior high high school experience. Uh, and then from there, um, as obviously uh, evidenced by these moves, my parents uh, are very nomadic. I kind of adopted that from them, and I have moved a little bit on my own since because I went to college in Ohio and bounced around and before landing here in Los Angeles. Just a quick little journey across the entire country. Yeah. Get to see little bits, little bits and pieces of the world. Uh, are you an only child? Do you have any siblings? I am an only child, yes. That must be nice. Yeah, you know, it's not something that I, I think about a lot. I, I do get asked every so often, did you ever miss having a brother or sister growing up? And the answer is no, because you can't really miss something you don't know anything about. Like, I, I wonder sometimes what it would be like, because obviously, you know, uh, as your parents get older and you get older, you kind of realize that you're really it. But um, I've never had the experience of, of a sibling, so I'm, I can't really speak to um, a yearning for it. They seem they seem cool, like, you know, my friends who get along with their siblings uh i don't know that's that's up to interpretation for whoever's listening yeah i'm a fan of mine but i've definitely heard uh not so great stories from other people <laughs> uh so you went to school in ohio yes how was that uh well i went to college at kent state university in ohio um and i had originally gone with the intent of uh majoring in broadcast journalism. Okay. And the reason I had selected Kent State when I toured it, they have a very good journalism school. Um, They have a very, very um, prominent fashion school, which I think is always the big reveal, is that they're like one of the second best uh, fashion schools in the nation behind FIT. And then they have this really great journalism school. And um, I was really invested. I, you know, I, I got a gig on our like college TV station. I also produced like a late night cable, like UHF cable access show of my own. Uh, but I was in classes when uh, 9-11 happened and just kind of even on the college news level, like being in the room while that news cycle and that spin happened, it, it really wasn't the sole factor that contributed to like kind of turning me off from writing the news, but it, it was, it didn't hurt you know, in terms of like, I was already kind of teetering, is this something I want to do? And then that whole thing stressed me out. And I always was more interested in creative writing. So I shifted my major to English, English literature, uh, which I have not only a bachelor's, but a master's in. So that stuck. But yeah, so where I went to uh, college, I ended up not even getting the degree I intended on getting when I went. So So I'm guessing you were always like creating things and uh, creating your own world for like stories and stuff or did that come later no I think that came fairly early on you know as an only child who moved a lot uh, I had to entertain myself quite frequently and I've always been quite okay with that because I uh, had an active imagination as a kid I always loved making up like intricate stories to entertain myself and when I got old enough to write I you know would sit there with my my notebook paper and scribble down stories or draw little comic books and then when computers got mixed in, I would write these little one page, usually holiday themed stories, which is funny based on like my later career. And I would print them out and then give them to my parents. And they were very polite because I'm sure they were terrible. But yeah, that was always sort of something I was interested in. And I always really liked the idea of creating a world or or creating characters who get to live with you in a a very unique way. Yeah. 
Uh, I always find it so fascinating when people are creating just things from thin air. I mean, everything I write is legit from me and what I've done and then maybe a little exaggerated. So whenever someone's like, yeah, I made this character and they're not at all like me, I'm like, that is fascinating. Well, I mean, I think so. Uh, Stephen King wrote a really great book called On Writing, which is a really awesome mix of memoir and sort of guide for for writing. And and he kind of unpacks this misnomer of uh, the, the write what you know adage that a lot of people like to shake around. And of course, you know, Stephen King has not ever been locked in a hotel that's been haunted by ghosts or like, you know, had a, a bucket of blood dumped on him at prom. Writing what you know is more just about taking your experience and imagining it in other circumstances and building upon that and creating that allegory. And I think that even when people write something that's vastly different from who they are, you still have to begin with that seed of, of familiarity. You know, you have to look into yourself, even if it's like, how would I react in this situation? And if that's not what this is about, what would be the complete counter character to that to make that happen? And that's always a fun and exciting adventure is kind of finding out who those people are. And then the real kind of like crazy thing, uh, or it sounds crazy, is once you create a character that has those dimensions and you start writing, you realize that sometimes the characters that you created don't always do what you want them to do because you may have an idea where the plot's going, but you've, you've established a personality that's so strong, you realize, well, this person that I have made wouldn't do what I had intended them to do when I just was trying to force a plot. And you have to kind of go with it. And it's, it, it, it sounds cuckoo, but it's part of the fun of it all, I think. I mean, we love cuckoo here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as an actor, I think it was... I'm guessing it's Uta Hagen because I was that kid that got the Uta Hagen DVD um, for some reason to watch. Oh, marvelous. Um, <laughs> and uh, part of it was just like, you are always you, but you are this character. Like you are you under the circumstances of this character. And like, how does that work? And how does that create things? Um, and then I guess from a creating the whole world perspective that shifts everything. Do you have a character that, you like comes to mind that you like started and then as their journey went on you're like man I am disappointed in the where this person is going but this is what they do um you know that's an interesting question uh I think because I uh, so frequently write within genre in terms of, of horror specifically uh I don't know that I've ever been disappointed in like the trajectory of a character only because that tends to be dark material and you sort of know that it's going to go wrong for somebody somewhere along the way. And if we were like mentally prepared for that, then even if it's like, I loved this character and I don't want them to die, uh, but it's logical in this progression of the story, that's kind of where it's like, oh, you know, I, I liked this character, but it was their time. But if I'm like writing like a, a family film or something uh, and, and a character goes wrong, I, I, I feel that would probably be vastly more disappointing. When did horror start to become a thing? Was that something you always loved as a kid? Well, the the short answer is yes and no. Um, when I was very young uh, and up until like kind of mid elementary school, I was terrified of everything. Like it, like I was definitive scaredy cat little kid. Uh, I didn't want to deal with any kind of material that was in any way intense. Uh, my parents loved to tell the story about how you know they would just be sitting and watching TV, and if 
the music cues changed to anything that sounded sinister, I would run over and turn the TV off because I didn't want to see it. <laughs> and I've spent a lot of my career as a creator also in conversation with other creators. Uh, and, and one of the things that I find with horror enthusiasts and, and horror writers and directors especially is there's a lot of different avenues into the genre, but one that does come up a lot is there were a lot of kids like me who were like very scared of the material, but what happens for some people is you're scared and you choose not to engage with it. And that's why like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like horror movies or I can't watch that stuff, etc. And then there are those who are scared by it and you sort of start becoming obsessed with it because you can't, you can't let it go. And so you keep thinking about it. And I, I, I guess probably on a psychological level, it's the thrill of this thing that feels so forbidden and other, uh, but also a conquering of that fear. And that was gradual. There was a show in the late 80s, early 90s called USA Up All Night, which would air every Friday and Saturday night on the USA Network back when it was sort of like rebel television. And what the whole gist of Up All Night was, was they would show um, B-movies, cult movies, horror films, like 80s sex comedies, like all the stuff that would be kind of like naughty or, or not necessarily mainstream by the multiplex. And um, it was hosted by this bubbly lady named Rhonda Shear, who now uh, sells bras on QVC. Fierce. She she was she was this like kind of valley girl who like would laugh at the movies and like have a good time and and you would just kind of sit through the double feature and i remember one night uh or i was looking at the tv guide because that was back in the days when you had to do that and um they were showing on usa up all night a double feature of a movie called attack of the killer tomatoes and its sequel return of the killer tomatoes and for little kid me that sounded like so goofy and preposterous which you know it is but i was like i want to know what that is I want to know what that is. I have to see it. I have to see it. And my mom in like a really like cool maneuver of parenting, not instead of being like, you get the, get scared all the time. We're not going to let you watch this. She was just like, okay, I'll let you watch this, but I'm going to stay up and watch it with you. Oh, that's nice. And um, so, you know, we made popcorn uh, 15 minutes into attack of the killer tomatoes. My mom falls asleep and I'm like on the floor watching TV and riveted because it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I, I, I stayed up and watched both that and Return of the Killer Tomatoes and how they would do it was uh, after Rhonda would leave, the network would just kind of re-air both of the movies a couple times until like that late night infomercial would hit or it would go off the air. And I must have watched both of those films at least twice through that evening. And I always say in terms of my horror origin story, when I woke up the next day, that was sort of like the rebirth, like this new baptism into this new obsession because everything was different after that. So I, 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 uh, I really have to give credit to uh, the Killer Tomatoes for being the switchover. And in fact, I, I do. There's a Killer Tomato uh, on my desk while I'm sitting here talking to you. I've never fully let it go. I have a little model of one. But yeah, and I always say, you know, I also freely admit that, you know, Killer Tomatoes is a horror comedy. It's not necessarily the R-rated gore fest or like, you know, psychological horror or like more intense, but it was a gateway. It led me into this idea that there, there was something more than what I was seeing in the movies my friends and I were watching or that we were talking at school or that they were playing at the multiplex. And that's what I became obsessed with. I became obsessed with this idea that this is a different kind of movie. And that means that there are more of these out there that people aren't talking about. And I, I, I guess it was that element of the forbidden or the or the underground, uh, the nitty gritty, dirty little secrets that I was just like, I have to see all of and so that was the journey. And of course, you know, as someone who was also writing stories and telling stories, that material seeped in. And, you know, soon that became a lot of what I was into. 
Yeah, I think that the the forbidden or the secretive of it is a big thing why so many queer people are attracted to horror. Um, I am not in that camp, uh, <laughs> but I I do find it fascinating that there seems to be this parallel between horror films and the horror genre and queer people. Well, ultimately, horror is, by definition, the genre of otherness. And who understands otherness better than queer people? I mean, it's it's our whole existence. We're othered by society. Um, and horror is also a genre of subversion. And, and we know about being treated as the subversive element. And what's really great about how horror is constructed is otherness and subversion manifest in different ways in these stories. You know, it's real easy to say like, oh, the other is the Frankenstein monster. The other is the creature from the Black Lagoon. But if that read disappoints you and you don't want to be like, why do we as queer people always have to identify with the monster? The answer is you don't. Like if you watch something like Halloween with, with Jamie Lee C- Curtis's character, Lori, who is, is the final girl of that movie, her whole journey is that even though she's friends with these popular girls she yearns to be like them they're like sexual and popular and cool and she's like on the outside and she just wants to belong but she feels a barrier between them and then the night that everything goes down what makes her different is what makes her powerful that's a queer story and that's why people are drawn to the genre especially in that queer intersection because you can use that dark lens to really look at things that the mainstream generally would ignore and for queer people people even more so our representation in horror has been much longer than any other genre because we could give the wink and the nod that other others weren't doing right and i feel like there's like a i mean there's a sexiness to it all right there's like a forbidden i don't know i just find the few that i've seen there's always this like undercurrent of like hot and not in a like graphic sexual way which i'm sure appears in plenty of horror uh creations but just like this it feels like you get to watch characters with a freedom that we don't really allow in a lot of other genres. Absolutely. And, you know, you said that you're not necessarily into horror, but I do know that you are into musical theater. Absolutely. And there, if, if there are two genres that couldn't be more related, that, like, that are kinship, it's, it's musical theater and horror because at the end of the day, although the construct and the rules are a little different, the elements are the same and that they both take something and present a heightened version of reality. And so you as an audience member or maybe go into a horror movie looking at one aspect of a heightened reality, but then if you go to a musical, it, you're looking at another. But the aim is to take those, those small little things that we don't say and put them in a scream or put them in a song. And in that way, it's cathartic for the audience. There's a release there too. Oh, that was beautiful. I'm just like... I've got chills. You almost make me want to go watch a movie and get scared, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that goes. I want to talk to you a little bit about your production company. Okay. June Gloom, correct? That is right. June Gloom Productions. That's us. So how has that been going for you? How is being in charge of it all going? Uh, it's been good. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of different threads that you have to keep into account when you are sort of running the ship. But June Gloom was was born out of that need for more queer content. My production partner and co-founder of June Gloom, Brandon Kirby, uh, he had created a really great digital turned streaming TV series called I'm Fine, uh, which is about a character who is not. Um, and uh, I had met Brandon around at Outfest. 
I had seen the first few episodes of I'm Fine when it was still a YouTube series. And we just struck up a friendship. And when he headed into production of the second season, he asked if I wanted to be involved as a producer. And I was like, sure, why not? And, you know, there are a lot of different ways to connect with people. And I always say there are a lot of different ways to fall in love. It's not always romantic. First day on set when we were shooting, there was such a synergy between us on that set that I remember thinking, I'm going to work with this person for the rest of my life. And we have. Like, you know, we we both felt it. Uh, I helped him finish producing that season. I was a producer on the third and final season as well as a, as a writer. And then when I'm Fine ended, he would produce projects of mine and I would produce projects of his. And it got to a point where like other queer creators were coming to us and like, can you help us make this thing? And because you guys seem to know what you're doing. And we're like, sure. And maybe like 11 productions in, we're like, okay, like we kind of like need to put a ring on this and make it official, right? So that's where June Gloom came from. We had already had like a nice body of work before June Gloom really got its name. Uh, and then we just said, you know, this is this is it. And what is it we want our, the goal of our company to be? And our company's mission statement is the creation and curation of queer horror and queer social commentary projects. Yes, we do um, produce our own things. You know, if he writes and directs something, we produce it. If I write and direct something, he, we produce it. But we also leave the door open so other queer artists who need help, if we can help them or we can help get that project made, we're, we're down to do that. And we've produced several different projects for other people because we as, 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 as writers and directors and producers who have been going into rooms to networks and studios know that if you have a queer story to tell, it doesn't always make it past that first sentence because we're still in a world where it's tricky to get these things made. And we want to be a place where we can help get it made. I mean, like we're an independent company. Money is always an issue in the world of film but if if we have the means or we have the contact and the time and the project makes sense and we dig it we're we want to we want to at least read it you know yeah i mean it at least reading it is so much more than i know multiple creators have gotten from their queer stories that they're trying to create and getting told things are too niche or need to be a bit more palatable and it's like palatable for who you know you know the the story oh yeah it's it's very nebulous and you know i i'm very open about the fact that um there was a period of time where uh in in town everybody los angeles uh it, it there was a kind of a search for a queer horror movie and what it was was the studios were looking for the gay get out which i find a problematic you know mission statement there's a lot to unbox there but they that was the thing they're like we're looking for the gay get out and they would ask, you know, myself and some other uh, writers who were sort of known to be out and queer and have done queer horror content. And nine times out of 10, I, I would go into these rooms and pitch a story and the feedback would be like, okay, but do you have something that's not so gay? And it was always feedback from like old straight men who really don't know anything about our world. And they're and, and basically they were saying, it's like, we want something that's gay, but gay for us, not gay for actual gay people. And we were just like, okay, you know, we understand that in the world of show business, that second word business is a very powerful thing. And, you know, maybe there's finance, maybe there's metrics. It's not always necessarily 
based in bigotry or hate. It's sometimes just, you know, the industry is very, very penny pinching sometimes. But we don't, if we have a gay story to tell, we want to tell it to gay people. Like I grew up my whole life watching movies made for other people and I still found something in them to love and to celebrate. So if I make a, a gay story about gay people, that's who it's for. And, you know, you can find something in it for yourself if you actually care enough to watch. But I, I'm not worried at this point about making movies for people who have thousands of movies they can choose from. Right. It's like a whole new definition of gay for pay. Exactly. Just like l- less porny sometimes. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that's really cool. And finding that uh, creative partner, I think sometimes is just as ominous and hard as finding a romantic partner. Um, just because when you're making things, you have to have so many. It sounds very nice to be like, I'm going to make this with a friend of mine. But when you get down to it and have to have hard conversations about things that each other are creating, um, it's great to find someone who has that same language as you or develop one together. And you need to, in as in any relationship, have kind of one of you be more level-headed about it. I, anytime I get asked about Brandon in interviews, uh, and I always say he is a saint and probably our saving grace sometimes because I am the kind of creator where I'm like, let's make all the things and let's make them now. And I'm like, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. And he'll be like, okay, we can do that, but we can't do it all at once. And you need to calm, calm down. And it's like, and I couldn't be more grateful to have that person, you know? So... Absolutely. When you're making things, how do you how do you switch from writer to director to producer on the same project? Well, I mean, I guess it depends sort of how the lineup goes. If I have written and am directing, it's not much of a, a move because, you know, I created the world. So then when I'm on set, I also know what the world needs to be. And then producer, especially in the in the way we produce things, it's sort of uh, a lot of overseeing the details, finding the location, making sure that people have food so they don't, you know, go hungry, like making sure the checks are sent in time and, uh, you know, or hiring wardrobe and makeup. And it's like a lot of the producer stuff happens between the writing of the script and being on the set. So it's sort of just like sequencing your events. Most of the times, if I have done my job or if Brandon has done his job as a producer, the day of while this shoot is going on, the real pressure is on the director because we should have pretty much got everything ready to go. And it's a lot of sitting around for us except to like make sure that lunch has picked up on time or like this person has what they need or checking in or like keeping the clock but it's sort of like producing is a lot of of prepping uh to make sure that everything else can happen and then how does that transfer over to the things you've created during this year this quarantine such as like unusual attachment well (laughs) unusual attachment certainly is an example of me being like i don't want to sit here i want to make a thing and and going back to that spirit of like i want to make all the things and i want to make them now the truth is once the lockdown order the stay at home quarantine whatever phrase you choose to use happened i like pandemic yeah the (laughs) pandemic um We, we actually were in the process of shooting a movie, a short film in collaboration with another artist that he had written and that I was directing and that Brandon and I were producing. Uh, and we had shot a couple days at the beginning of March. And then the second that shut down, like every like everything, of course, ground to a halt. And there, to this day, I mean, like we've only shot those two days. And there there is kind of a question, will we, whenever this is actually done, be able to resume that shoot? We don't know because like so much changes. People's looks change, you know? 
locations are not available, et cetera, et cetera. So it was sort of like one of these things where I felt immediately creatively stifled because I was in the process of doing something and it's like being told now you can't and you're like, arg. So I was just kind of like stomping around my apartment, staring at the walls, thinking like, I need to do something. I want to do something, but how? I can't leave my house. And then I was like, oh, what if that's the thing though? How do I make something without leaving my place? And I started thinking about ways that you could use the constraints and turn them to your advantage. And I had the idea for Unusual Attachment as, as a story that takes place over screens. But before I leapt into that, I called Brandon to be like, is this something we should try and do? And then we also talked to Andrew separately, who is usually our cinematographer, but because obviously he couldn't be here shooting it, he is also a really brilliant editor and visual effects coordinator. Uh, and I was like, can, can we make this happen? And they were both like, we're in. So I wrote the script and got the actors attached and we shot everything remotely and we used Zoom, which I had never used Zoom until March 2020. So it was like all very new. I don't think Zoom existed until March 2020. I truly think it just appeared and was like, remember Skype? No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right, because I had never even heard of it. But we turned Zoom into a digital set, essentially, where we would spend the time talking to the actors and like using whatever lighting they had at home with the help of roommates, partners, you know, friends to kind of be the de facto crew if they were so willing to help set up lights or move things around. And then once the frame was set, we would record using a separate device to have the cleanest video and audio possible. And then we compiled all of it and cut it together and we released Unusual Attachment in April. I think we were one of the very first kind of quarantine horror pieces to come out. We definitely um, led the charge, I think. We got a nice little bit of press on it. And that was, it was nice because I felt like we figured out a new way to make a film. I learned skills in filmmaking that I would have never had or had to learn if this didn't happen. And, and there was something very gratifying that we were still able to create. Now, of course, I mean, having that come out in April, it was also like, okay, now, you know, it's December and we're still stuck at home. That's where some of the other projects in a similar space came from. It's like, okay, well, what else can we do? And we had talked to um, Deku, which is a great gay streaming platform that we've done some projects for. And, and they liked Unusual Attachment, but we had released Unusual Attachment just for free to the world because we made it in that spirit. But I was like, you know we could do something like this. What if we do a series, like, you know, a limited eight-part gay, queer, trans, lesbian, intersecting ensemble piece? And they were like, cool, go for it. And then we were like, oh, now we have to make this. <laughs> and in July, Brandon and I sat down and started working on the details of what the stories would look like. And we hired BJ Colangelo, who she is an amazing uh, writer in Ohio, to help us address the aspects of the story that we, um, as cis gay men, shouldn't be talking about or rather you know that we can't speak to authentically and we wrote an eight-part series called so far so close which ended up being shot in a very similar way to unusual attachment and we shot it over the course of five months 21 actors across five states and two con continents it was it was wild you uh you yourself have a little cameo in one of the episodes so i mean it really is just the, the creative spirit we don't like to to not be doing things and we also like to be able to show people you can you can always find a way. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I can't wait for award season. Look for my two seconds. I find it so interesting. I mean, it's hard not to talk about what's been going on as a creative, but it's also like I don't want it to be the entire narrative. But at least for me and my creation, I'm just so astounded that you've been able to 
continue that drive of making things because I feel like it just comes and goes in insane waves these days where it's like I stare at a wall or I write six pages and hope that there's one joke in there, you know. But yeah, especially with unusual attachment, my roommate and now your roommate, Sean Doherty, I just remember him being like, yeah, I'm going to be in this thing. And I was like, didn't lockdown like just start like, wow, people are out there and they're just getting it going. Well, the the real behind the scenes trivia of that is there was actually another short that was written when we still thought that we could have limited engagement, you know, where we could like have smaller gatherings. Uh, I wrote a short that was going to be centered entirely around one actor that I could shoot with me, my camera person and that actor in an empty apartment. And there was like, it was a whole monster story called what's left inside. And as we were deciding we were going to do that and be like, we're going to surprise everyone. And we'll have made like this like weird art house short while we're all, uh, you know, waiting for this to end. And that's when LA was like, LOL, JK, not even limited engagements you all just have to stay home and so i was like well damn it like it was cut off at the pass and then again i as i said that's when i was like walking around staring at the walls and unusual attachment became the thing and i think you know i'm not necessarily a spiritual person but that it, it well it became what it was supposed to be honestly i'm just astounded i i'm a huge fan so as we reach kind of the end here just looking back over what we have talked about and the things you obviously know about yourself, I have to ask the question, Okay, why are you like this? Why am I like this? <laughs> uh, you know, I think that I'm like this because I love the power of stories, but I also love the, the way that stories can be confrontational. I mean, we all love a nice cozy story and a nice feel-good entertaining movie, but when I think about the art that rocked the needle for me when I was getting invested in movies that pushed the boundaries, that like kind of helped me understand who I was and what I wanted to see, they were always things that pushed an envelope in a way. And that's something that I strive to see in the, in the, in the art that I, I watch and read and, and listen to even. And it's what I, I, I like to make. You know, one of the things that we didn't discuss when we were talking about June Gloom and something that Brandon and I are very committed to is because we're telling queer stories, we want to tell queer stories. And by that, it's like sometimes the stories we tell reveal things about the community that you and I know, but like for some reason, people are afraid to put on screen. Like a, a short film that I wrote and directed called The Office is Mine is all about a guy in the office who feels threatened when his workplace hires another gay guy. And it's a commentary on how gay men feel territorial with each other sometimes when we should in fact be raising each other up. And that to me was important because, and, and this is in no way disparaging comment because I love these kind of movies, but when you go to queer festivals, it's always like a coming out story, which we need those. And I'm glad people are making that. Or like kind of nice romance movies, but it's like, okay, the other aspect of our community is that sometimes we're shitty to each other. And if we don't unpack it in our art and just and find a way to discuss it, it's always going to exist. And uh, Wes Craven, one of the great horror greats, he, he once, once long ago said, we don't go to horror movies for fear. We go to them for release. And I think especially when you are telling these kinds of stories, that's part of it. You need to go to these and let it go and or also just sit with other people and be like, yeah, I guess that's true. I guess we do that. Maybe we shouldn't. I, uh, I'm currently... Uh, at my parents' house with the whole family. And we were watching um, the second season of Umbrella Academy. 
and spoiler alert i guess if anybody hasn't watched this it's on netflix and you've had time but (laughs) there is a queer story in it that uh doesn't go great Um, it's set in the 60s and it's just like not received well and my brother-in-law turns to me and he's like are you ever tired of watching gay stories where it's like despair and it it i mean it's a conversation we as queer people have with each other all the time but like coming from a straight man it just kind of like hit me differently because i was like yes absolutely i am like i would much rather see other types of stories but of course these exist and when it's the only thing that's being shown yes it is more representation but if it's only representing queer people in a sad light it doesn't really make it like enticing to live your authentic self absolutely and i think the thing though that we also have to consider especially with those kinds of despair stories is who's telling that because a lot of them like the award show gay movies for lack of a better term they're usually motivated by straight audiences nine times out of ten told by straight storytellers so it's it's like i don't want to say it's like we don't want your pity but it's like please stop telling stories that make us sort of martyrs for your own for your own comfort Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I think that queer stories that address issues within the queer community, we're not talking about the like most of my characters are out in queer and thriving, and any damage that happens is because they're damaging to themselves. Nine times out of ten in anything that we make, 99% of everybody in the story is a queer person. Because I don't like this whole thing where, like, you introduce a queer character and they're either a grieved, tragic, or, like, you bury your gaze, you kill, kill that character. I want to show that the world that is on screen is, is a queer world. And sometimes people still make mistakes. And I think that's the difference. And that's the line you have to watch. I'm, I'm like you. I don't want to sit and watch some, some uh, straight person's vision of our misery so they feel better about themselves. Yeah, it just as it's not for us. It's about us, but not for us. And exactly. Feels, it's starting to feel gross, ladies and gentlemen, and those in between. I have a uh, quote about you that I just want to read to you to get your uh, response. Oh, God. Okay. It says that you are known for your seductive yet cheeky delivery of lines. Do you think that <laughs> applies to you? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's true anymore or if it ever was true. Um, so so there's a two-part response to that. Um, I, for people who actually don't know, a, a hidden aspect of my career that's not so hidden because if you look at my IMDb, it's right there. It's just people don't really ever think to ask. Is I do a lot of voiceover work outside of um, writing and producing. I frequently provide voices and, and character voices for a lot of different networks. And I don't know exactly where that came from that that that's an imdb trivia i know i know that where you found that there was uh, part of the life of a horror filmmaker is we have to do horror conventions a lot which is fun you get to interact with people i don't know how they're going to survive post pandemic that's a that's another thing that we're going to see but there was this this uh horror journalist named christy jett who i used to see a lot in the mid thousands and she used to write for a lot of sites She always would comment whenever I would host panels or talk on like live. She'd be like, oh, Varadi's got a seductive voice. And I was was like, okay, thanks. Like, like, how do you respond to that? 
And then one day that just appeared on IMDb. And well, I I strongly suspect that Christy Jett is the person who added that to IMDb. And like, I'm flattered. And I'm like, if she is, like she perpetrated a myth that I, I don't personally believe is true, but how nice, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, it's very intriguing. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're getting towards the end, I like to end every episode by asking my guest, do you have any questions for me? Yes, I do. Because you are, um, you're a working actor. And this whole conversation has been all about sort of how you change your mode of thinking during a time like this, during a time of pandemic, or like, you know, the creative stifling beyond just performing, what what have you kind of re racked in your brain about your work? And what do you want to do when you finally get out of this? Have you do you have like specific creative goalposts? Uh, yeah, I think, I think I was developing that thought process, um, even pre pandemic, just reaching the end of my 20s. So I went to school um, for musical theater, and I've done musical theater most of my life. And I've always loved it and always will love it and continue to work in that field. But I think a thing that happens when you grow up in that space is you develop blinders to any other type of creative endeavor and it's crazy to me because when you really think about doing musical theater it's one of the most in my opinion collaborative art forms we have it's all about mix mixing different types of artistry to create one cohesive work and so for me i've always considered myself to be a very funny person and i've always felt gravitated towards material about that but my line was famously I don't want to create things um, I want to interpret things which is a privileged statement upon looking back and uh, I think it was in response to people people who I would consider um, elders or gatekeepers or my teachers telling me to create my own work in a response to not knowing necessarily what to do with me so for me, it always kind of felt like a, well, I'm going to stick it to you because I'm going to do it the traditional way, as opposed to hearing what were actually compliments. So for me, my goalposts are, um, I'm starting to do stand-up, and I like doing that because I feel control over that. Um, I'm making this podcast. Me and uh, roommate Sean Doherty have done various little things here and there, but finding our footing in that, and it's just kind of broadening the scope of what is entertainment and what you can do while still pursuing the same thing that you wanted to do when you were 12. Right. So for me, it's just exploring the actual art of creation and how that is empowering and doesn't, it's not belittling to tell anyone to create their own thing is an empowering statement. It's just been used in a way for so long to make you feel other. Right. But if anything that I've learned in my career, it's that other can make you powerful. Absolutely. So be be as other as you need to be and want to be and, and break boundaries because that's exciting. Right. Although, okay. And I do have to ask just because um, you had me on the show and you said this, since you don't like horror movies, what is a horror movie that you've seen that you do like? It's really basic to say, but I do love the Scream series. I saw that young and was able to get into the world of that um and then recently i've liked the haunting of hill house and blind manor i think those are really great 
I get tiptoed in and out of them because my entire apartment loves horror and I don't. And normally I've in a normal time, I can just <laughs> be like, I'm so busy during the month of October and walk away. But uh, during quarantine, I got sat down to watch a few things. But for me, I enjoy the horror films that are either funny or like cerebral. I'm just I'm just not a gore fan, which in a very limited scope was all I was saying was the horror genre for a long time. No, and I think that often what happens when people say they don't like horror movies, which is, it's sort of, I always ask that question to kind of back people into a corner, proverbially speaking, because the the reality is when people say they don't like horror movies, fundamentally, that's that's usually not true. Uh, What it, it often is, is a response to sort of the overwhelming zeitgeist idea that all horror movies are sort of like torture and blood and like, you know, the kind of over and because the, the market was saturated with that for so long i don't blame people for kind of having that image but the genre itself is is very diverse and you know there are, are many different avenues to tell a spooky story uh like you said there there are very cerebral ones there are very atmospheric ones there's a lot of horror comedy because those two things uh, are, are very hand in hand at times and i just think it, it's a matter of of finding a, a space that you like and like what about the genre engages you because it, to dislike a whole genre is 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 vastly impossible i and that because I've, I've been in situations where people say i don't like horror movies and i'm like that's not true because uh, just take that word out and apply anything else like if someone said i don't like dramas you'd be like what that's not that's yeah that shit. so <laughs> absolutely <laughs> or uh the babysitter is that on netflix yeah the babysitter's so much fun i love that movie i really enjoyed that and the second one i thought was really fun as well yeah, I um I really thought both of those were great. I love the second one just really commits. I I don't even know if Robbie Mel was allowed to have a wardrobe. They were just like you're not wearing a shirt this entire movie. <laughs> yeah. Just like be prepared. Um there's just no clothes. Um and we'll go with that. Right. And I'm pretty sure they shot it in Lake Tahoe, which is not warm. So <laughs> I, I feel for him. The things people do for their art, right? You know, you got to sacrifice. But yeah, I am um, I am tiptoeing around it and I am learning as I go, but I definitely do have to be like coerced with, Hey, I made cookies and they're here and this is on. So you're watching. Well, so my recommendation, and here's a good one for your listeners who maybe feel a little bit the same. uh, And I do believe it just was added to Hulu. So you can finally watch it. If you have a Hulu subscription is a movie called the final girls, uh, which is more comedy than horror but it's uh it's a brilliant cast Thaisa Farmiga Malin Ackerman um and it's sort of a touching story about a girl and her mom set against this the world's obsession with horror movies and it's really uh sweet and I think it's a good movie for people who don't necessarily feel like they like the genre but because the movie is also about that weird intersection of of how the genre could be for or not for you is, is is a really good one to check out and it's really heartwarming it's you know not necessarily what you expect to hear when someone's describing a horror movie but it is a very heartwarming film and so that's my recommendation for people to check out fierce i'll have to give the final girls a watch uh michael where can where can the people find you uh, oh, I'm everywhere. Uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm either usually talking about pop culture, making a stupid pun, or promoting a project, but that's me, and that's where I'm at, uh, at Michael Verratti. Uh, it's V as in Victor, A-R-R-A-T-I. 
Also, same on Instagram. You could add me on Facebook, but I never, ever check it. So, like, Twitter and Insta are the best places. And, yeah, uh, a lot of the movies and things that I've worked on and shows I've worked on are out in the world uh, on various streaming platforms. So have a peek at the IMDb, decide what you like or what you don't, and, and you can find them from there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been so great. Thank you. I had a blast. This was so much fun. I learned so many things. So I'm so excited to watch Final Girls. And maybe this time next year we can check in and I'll be all up in the horror genre. I will be ready. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.